0: Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. One more time. Let's see if you guys are awake. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think all of us have made some dumb decisions in the pursuit of happiness, have we not? One decision for me in particular that sticks out happened about a year after my wife Stacy and I had been married. We got a pamphlet in the mail that informed us we were a part of a select chosen group of people to receive a free vacation somewhere in the tropics. There's a beautiful picture on the front with white sandy beaches. The only thing we had to do was sit through a 90-minute informational meeting in order to get our free vacation. So that night came, Stacy and I drove to the place where we were supposed to go through the meeting. We sat down. A guy stands up. He's got a Hawaiian shirt on. Looks like he's been spending way too much time in the tanning bed. There are pictures of all the places all over the world that you would want to go on the walls. He stands up and he says, I'm going to give you an opportunity that you cannot refuse, an opportunity of a lifetime because you deserve to be happy. And if you will only for $3,000 buy this timeshare, you can take your family on all the vacations that you've always dreamed of going on. Now, Stacy and I were committed to not buying into this timeshare. We looked at each other. We said, there's no way we're going to do this. So we had to go and sit down face-to-face with a gal in order to get our free vacation that we were promised through the mail. So we went and sat at this desk, and there we had to tell her no, that we didn't want the timeshare. And So we told her, no, we're just newly married. We can't buy this. And she says, well, you're missing out on the opportunity of a lifetime. You deserve to be happy. And we said, no, we're not going to do it. So finally they took us around a corner, and there was a guy who looked like he had spent a few years in the mafia and smoked way too many cigars. And we got seated at his desk. And he says, I'm going to make you an offer that you can't refuse. For half of the price, I'm going to give you the timeshare. You can change your destiny and be happy for the rest of your life. Now, Stacy and I looked at each other. And I don't know if it was like we didn't want to end up dead in the side of, in a ditch somewhere on the side of the road or we wanted to be able to take great family vacations for the rest of our lives, but we signed across the dotted line and got the timeshare and paid for it over the next year and a half and only have used it in two times over the last nine years. It was a dumb decision made in the pursuit of happiness. All of us have made dumb decisions in the pursuit of happiness. We've pursued a relationship that we thought would bring happiness to our heart, But maybe there was a brokenness and a hurt that came as a result of the pursuit of happiness. We've bought stuff that we didn't need to buy, houses, cars, clothes, that we thought would fill the hole in our hearts, but later on we found that we were even more empty in our pursuit of happiness. And then we go even further into it, don't we? Because that which we bought, that that which we pursued did not make us happy, so we try to get more house, more clothes, more money, more women, more sex, more power. And then the hole continues to grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. We call this the happiness facade. It's the pursuit of happiness in all the wrong places. And here's what I want to say to you at the beginning of our Happiness Is message series. It's this. The happiness facade, looking for happiness in all the wrong places, has led to us experiencing hurts, habits, and hang-ups. There are hurts, Habit, habits and hang-ups in all of our lives because of this happiness facade. It might be a hurt in a relationship that you thought would give you happiness. It might be a hang-up that's come as a result of buying something that you did not need. It might be a habit that's come because you thought if you consumed this chemical, it would make you happy, and then over the course of time, you find yourself addicted to this, this chemical that is not filling the hole in your heart. The happiness facade leads to hurts, habits, and hang-ups, what we'll call brokenness. All of us as human beings are broken. And so much of it is connected back to our pursuit of happiness in all the wrong places. Now, let me say this. This is why we're doing a series on happiness. Because I don't believe that the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of joy is wrong. In fact, the scripture teaches us that God is a joyful God, and his desire for you is to experience joy at the core of who you are. And then as that joy is transforming our hearts, it will result in happiness, but we pursue it in all the wrong places. And over the next eight weeks at South Bay, we're going to look at pursuing happiness in the path that God gives to us. And what we're going to discover is true happiness leads to lasting peace and contentment. That true happiness leads to lasting peace and lasting contentment. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to unpack what it looks like. Each message will build on itself. It's like a ladder. We're going to look at eight teachings that Jesus gives to us about true happiness. Now, let me say this. In our church, there are people from all different walks of life. You might have received a flyer in the mail and you decided to come to church, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a really long period of time. Maybe there was a friend that drug you to church and they threatened you with your life and said, if you don't come to church with me, then I won't be your friend anymore. So you're here as a result. Or maybe you've been coming to South Bay for a while. I want to encourage you to be here as much as you can over the next eight weeks because each message will lay on top of each other. And I believe that if we'll implement what Jesus teaches, it will lead to lasting joy and contentment. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. We're going to look at a very famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this passage, what we're going to see is the path that Jesus outlines for happiness. Jesus stands up on a mountaintop and is preaching to thousands of people and listen to what he says. The scripture says, Now when he saw the crowds, speaking about Jesus, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that word blessed, in the original language, literally means happy. Jesus is giving the path to happiness through these eight, what we call, beatitudes, or eight truths, or eight principles. So I'm going to read it with the phrase happy, because it helps us understand more appropriately what Jesus is saying. Now listen. Happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Happy are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Of heaven, Many of the truths that Jesus outlines in this passage seem counterintuitive and are very difficult to understand. That's why we're going to take one week for each phrase. And the phrase we're going to take this week is the first phrase when Jesus says, Blessed or happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus talking about when he says, Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Does it not seem like a contradiction I drive back and forth to work multiple times a week and on my path back and forth to work there are a couple stoplights where there are homeless people standing out at stoplights always trying to attract attention. And the expression on their face is never happy. It never seems delightful. So why would Jesus say that to be poor in spirit is the foundation? It's the beginning of happiness. And many have misinterpreted this verse. Does it mean that I should be I should take a vow of poverty and go live in the desert like a monk with a big outfit on that's not so cool and not talk ever and be depressed and have a sad look on my face? Does it mean that I should go stand on the side of the road with a sign and ask for help? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I think that it means something that we see just a few verses later. In fact, I think it's no accident That in Matthew chapter 8, we see a man who exemplifies what it means to be poor in spirit right after the Sermon on the Mount. The first moment when Jesus steps down after teaching these thousands of people, we see a man who exemplifies what it means to be poor in spirit. And we're going to look at three confessions of those who are poor in spirit. Three prayers, three confessions, three statements that exemplify what it means to be poor in spirit. And we're not talking about being poor financially. It's a condition of the heart. It's ultimately humility that attracts the presence and the power of God upon our lives. Now watch this story, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. It says this, when he, talking about Jesus, came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him, and a man with leprosy came and knelt before him, talking about Jesus, saying, Lord, if you are willing, would you please make me clean? Now, this is so difficult for us to understand what was happening in this moment. Here's a guy who has leprosy, and in their culture, when you had leprosy, you were cut off from the rest of society. Think about it. This man could not even sit at the dinner table with his wife and his kids. He couldn't get on the floor and wrestle with his little boys and girls anymore. He couldn't even go to church on a Sunday morning and worship God because he had leprosy. His leprous condition was seen as a result of his sin. And the rest of society made him an outcast so that he could not even be in the room with us today. And all of a sudden he sees this great teacher coming down and he realizes that now he has the opportunity to be healed. There's an opportunity for hope. But the question that he brings to Jesus or the statement that he says to Jesus, listen to his first phrase. He says, Lord, if you are willing, would you please make me clean? Lord, if you're willing. If you would just reach out, if you would just speak out, you could make me clean. You could heal this condition. You could take care of my brokenness. Lord, if you're willing. And look at Jesus' response. Jesus reaches out his hands and touches the man. He does something that would have been unimaginable in his day, to reach out and touch someone who's dirty, to reach out and touch somebody who had been ostracized from society. Jesus reaches out and touches the hand of this leprous man, and look at the phrase that he uses. He says, I am willing. We have a God who is willing to heal the broken condition of humanity. And I think sometimes it's so hard for us to understand. We can read stories like this. We can fathom a loving God, but to understand that he's willing, he's willing and able to heal the brokenness in your life today. If you're willing, Jesus says, I am willing. Be clean. Immediately Is cured of leprosy, and Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone? Go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses has commanded for you as a testimony to them. We see in this man a heart that is poor in spirit. The condition of his response to Jesus was one of great humility. And I want us to first see something. I want us to notice how the man acknowledges his inability to fix his condition on his own. That he literally says to Jesus, I need you to intervene in my circumstances to give healing to my brokenness. And the first condition, or the first confession, ultimately is an acknowledgement of the areas of our lives where we have lack that i do not have what it takes in and of myself to fix the brokenness that has come because of the happiness facade the hurts the hang-ups the habits in my life that have come because i've looked for happiness in all the wrong places i do not have what it takes i have lack this last week it was a pretty stressful period of time for my wife, Stacy and I, and multiple for multiple reasons. We're moving our contract on our current apartment is up in just a couple of weeks. We we weren't able to find something. We'd been looking, we'd gone through like multiple houses. In addition to that, South is moving to a new facility. And we're we're in the process of trying to begin construction. We had a bunch of hiccups with the city of San Jose. And uh, in addition to that, I found out that I have to have surgery surgery on a part of my body that I can't mention and uh, a lot of other things that, that just seem to compound. Our, our, our church continues to grow. We're in the process of trying to hire additional staff. Uh, we're, we're beyond ourselves in our wisdom and our strength and understanding. And I had a morning this week where I just wrote down all these things on a note card, and I'm like, Dude, I'm about to go crazy insane with all this stuff. I I don't have what it takes to deal with all of this. And I wrote it on a note card and I got down on my knees and I put it right in my Bible before God and I said, God, I don't have the wisdom to lead our church where it needs to go. I don't have the strength to deal with the pressure that I currently feel. I acknowledge to you in this moment, I lack what I need. I have lack. What is it today that you lack? Is it the wisdom in order to know how to parent and disciple your kids. Maybe it's, it's the self, self-control in the heat of the moment with your spouse, not blow up at them. Maybe for some of you who are pursuing dating relationships, it's the strength to stay the path, to stay on the course that will lead to the spouse that God wants you. Maybe it's the skills that you need in your area of personal finances to manage your, your resources. Maybe, maybe it's the, the wisdom that you need at work in order to accelerate and move forward in your career. But acknowledging the lack in our lives is the beginning of God healing and fixing the brokenness in us. Maybe today what you lack is wisdom. I love James chapter 1 verse 6 that says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Maybe today what you lack is is the the strength or the ability to persevere and you feel overwhelmed. I love 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. You might want to write these verses down and go back to them. The scripture says that my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast All the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Maybe you're feeling weary and tired. Isaiah 40 verse 28 says, Do you not know, have you not heard, that the Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not grow tired or weary and His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not grow faint. Where is it today that you lack? Many of you might have heard this phrase before. God will not give you what? More than you can handle. That is a lie from the pit of hell. In fact, look at this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8-10. through 10. It says, we don't want you to be uninformed. The Apostle Paul is speaking after being beaten for his faith in Christ. He says about the hardships we suffered, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. God threw him right into a sur- situation and a circumstance that was beyond his ability to endure, so much that he despaired even of life. And indeed, we felt the ha- sentence of death in our hearts, but this happens so that we would rely on who not on ourselves but on God who does what who raises the dead that the same God that conquered the grave is the same God that can intervene the one who is limitless in his ability and limitless in his supply can supply out of his plenty into your lack if you will first acknowledge what the area of lack is in your life I have lack Lord I can't fix my condition, if you're willing. Will you please make me clean? And then the second confession we see in this passage is this. Not only does the man acknowledge that he has lack, but very closely connected is that the man acknowledges that he needs help. I have lack, and I need help. I need you, God, to change and fix my condition. I need your help in my dating relationships to stay on the path that will lead to the marriage that you want. I need your help in my marriage to know how to communicate with my spouse. I need your help with my finances in order to manage them in a godly way. I need your help, students, to say to God, I need your help with my studies to stay focused and to keep my mind straight and to to really be able to zero in on the information I need to zero in on. I need help is the foundation and the beginning of the pursuit of happiness, a happiness that leads to lasting joy and contentment. I love this verse in James chapter 4, verse 6. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You notice that? God stiff arms the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Isn't that so contrary to our society and culture? Pride is a virtue. Weakness is a vice in our culture. Yet the scripture flips it on its head and says, no, weakness and humility is the virtue and pride is the vice. So many of us, in the American sense of the word, have that pride that we can fix it. Men, look in my eyes right now. There's that man pride that troubles us and causes us to be unwilling to acknowledge when we need help. So consequently, your marriage suffers, your relationship with your kids suffer, your finances suffer. Every relationship in your life can suffer because you're unwilling to acknowledge your need for help because you're a self-made man who pulls himself up by his bootstraps and you're not willing just to humble yourself and say, I need some help. My son came to him who's three and a half years old. I asked him for his permission to tell this story. He didn't give it to me, but I'm still going to tell the story. When he was three and a half years old, he's now five and a half, he was riding his tricycle on this path behind our apartment complex. And at the end of the path, there's, there's this little narrow basically a ramp that goes down. It it descends about six or seven feet uh, in in elevation over a period of about 15 to 20, maybe 30 feet. So you could imagine a tricycle could get going on this thing. And at the end of it was this big stucco wall that's not going to move for a three and a half year old. And every time he would get to the top of this ramp, he would tell my wife or me or whoever was pushing him, I'm going to do it by myself. I can do it by myself. Let me go. Now, my wife would never let him go because she knew that the consequence would be pretty bad for him. But on one particular occasion, he just pitched a fit. I mean, he was throwing his arms in the air. He's crying. I want to do it by myself. I can do it by myself. So my wife, in a moment of haste and great parenting, decides, I'm just going to let him do it by himself, and he'll suffer the consequences. So she lets go. The tricycle picks up steam, starts going faster, 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 all the way until he gets right to the wall and Smack His forehead is the first thing to hit this stucco wall. His forehead automatically gets this goose egg, grows. They have to rush him to the hospital. He has a concussion. Just kidding about the hospital and concussion part. But the goose egg part is true. And you know what? Never again did he ask to go down that ramp by himself. He learned his lesson. But think about it in our lives. That so many times we have that do-it-myself mentality, and we just keep hitting our head against the wall. I mean, when do you think after a while it doesn't feel good? I mean, it might be good to ask for some help, and we got all these bruises all over our lives, habits, hurts, and hang-ups because we're unwilling to confess our need for help. Jesus says that the foundation of happiness, the foundation of joy, is your acknowledgement that you need help in your current situation and circumstance. Let me tell you this, and not to, not, I'm not trying to boast on myself, I'm just trying to illustrate the reality of Jesus's teachings and how it changes your life. I, I think back on when I first got married, I did not know how to communicate, I didn't know how to manage my checkbook, I was extremely selfish, I got in a lot, a lot of fights with my wife. There were many times where, you know, you know, It was really bad in our house. And we went to a counselor. We started meeting with mentors. We read books. We paid hundreds of dollars to get the help that we needed in order to experience a marriage that was happy, filled with joy. I remember multiple times in parenting thinking to myself, I have no clue how to parent these kids, especially the kid that's like me. I have no clue how to parent him. My wife, Stacey, and I literally spent hundreds of dollars read books, met with mentors to try to figure out and get some handles and now both of these areas of my life are two areas of my life that are the greatest source of happiness and joy and I believe that so much of it is traced back to a willingness to ask for help. I think about our personal finances and I've shared this story here before about realizing that we were $17,000 in debt with student loans and we needed an intervention. And we went through a Dave Ramsey financial peace course. We read books. We met with mentors. We asked questions. And God began to give us the wisdom that we needed in that area of our lives. And now there's great joy and contentment in that area of our lives that all stems back to a willingness to ask for help. Where in your life do you need help? Do not let your pride be the wall that keeps you from the happiness and joy that God wants you to experience. Some of us are just on the other side of happiness, all because of our unwillingness to ask for help from God and from others. Just write it down in your notes. What is the area of your life today that you need help? Is it your marriage? Is it your relationship with your kids? Is it dating singles? Is it school and knowing how to study? What is it that you need help with and be willing to ask both God and others to intervene? And then lastly, certainly not least, I want us to see the last confession in this man. When he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus to intervene, what does he say? He says, if you're willing, please make me clean. Do you notice that he doesn't ask Jesus to heal him? How ironic is that what he needs is healing physically but he asked Jesus for a cleansing spiritually. It's because this man understood that at the core of his condition was not just a physical need, it was spiritual healing that was required and Jesus was the only one that could give it to him. And the third confession of someone who lives poor in spirit is this. It's that I'm sorry. I am sorry for the brokenness that I have created with my choices. I am sorry for the pain that I've caused you because I've mistreated you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry to your wife. I'm sorry to your husband. I'm sorry, singles, to all the people that you've bruised and damaged in the process of you trying to look for a spouse. I'm sorry, mom. I'm sorry, dad. I'm sorry, son. I'm sorry, daughter. I'm sorry, neighbor. I'm sorry, coworker. I'm sorry, God for the condition that I've put my life in, in my pursuit of happiness in all the wrong places. God, I am sorry for what I've done. And I love this verse. Psalm 51 verse 10, listen, verse 17. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. God is drawn to brokenness in us. He's drawn to a heart that is willing to acknowledge where it's messed up and confess to him and say, I'm sorry. See, there's this very powerful verse in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. The Bible says that if we claim to be without sin, that we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The Bible uses that word sin. Describing the broken state of humanity, it's that we've been separated from God because of our choices—the jealousy, the bitterness, the anger—that all of us run with has caused us to be separated from God. But the Scripture is so clear that if we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves. If we claim to be without brokenness, if we claim that we haven't messed up in our marriage, if we claim that we're not doing it the wrong—if we're not willing to claim that we're doing it the wrong way. The Bible says that we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but if we confess, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The beginning of healing is your willingness to acknowledge and my willingness to acknowledge that I have lack. And it's a willingness to say to God, I need your help. I need you to intervene, but it's also That moment where you come before God or you come before your spouse or you come before that person that you've hurt and you say I am sorry and the Bible says that God is both faithful and just to heal us forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness why does the Bible say in that moment that God is faithful and just and it combines forgiveness mercy his justice and righteousness it's because of the cross it's because at the cornerstone of the message of Jesus is more than a healer. It's more than a great teacher. It's that we could not fix our lives in and of ourselves, and there had to be someone who would intervene. And the whole message of the life of Jesus is a God that was willing to intervene on our behalf so that we could be restored back in relationship with God, and the brokenness of humanity can be fixed. See, the Bible says that the wages of our sin in Romans chapter 6, verse 23 is death. That the consequence of our jealousy, our bitterness, our anger is separation from God. Not just separation in this life, but separation for eternity. The wages of sin is death, but the gift, the verse goes on to say, of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That there's a gift that God wants to give you. It's just like any other gift. You can't earn it. You can't work hard enough. It's a gift that is given to you, but you have to receive it. And the Bible says that that gift is eternal life and the only way to receive it is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, when Jesus hung on a cross and every world religion will agree that there was a moment where Jesus hung on the cross, we believe that Jesus' death was more than a martyr's death. It was the death of God in human flesh after living 33 perfect years, never making a mistake, that, that death became a payment and a bridge for all of humanity to receive God's forgiveness. A just and holy God cannot stand to look on forgiveness, but a merciful and loving God makes a way for healing to happen and brokenness to be restored. And the path for you and I is by placing our faith in what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection three days later. That as we place our faith in Him, the relationship between us and God can begin in this moment, and the Scripture says that it continues for all of eternity. That joy and contentment can come to you in your willingness to acknowledge your need for help, my willingness to acknowledge my need for help, saying to God that I'm sorry, and that joy and contentment can continue from this moment for all of eternity. Where are you today in your journey spiritually? Maybe God's knocking on the door of your heart, and this is the moment of your salvation. This is the moment where God created you to enter into relationship with Him, where you would turn back from your old way of life, and you'd turn to Him. The Bible calls this repentance. It's a confession that the way of life you're on, the happiness facade is not working, and to say, God, I'm going to pursue happiness in you and in the path that you've designed me to experience joy and fulfillment. Today, I'm doing just a turn around back to God. Maybe today's that day for you. It's real simple. It's the condition of your heart that acknowledges your need before God and confesses to him with your lips. God, I want to follow you. I want to give my life to you. And I invite everybody in the room to close their eyes and bow their heads for just a moment before we conclude. The most important decision that you will ever make is the decision of what you'll do with the message of Christ. Will you receive the mercy and forgiveness that God wants to give on your behalf? Not by earning it, but by placing your faith in Christ, maybe for the very first time today. When you stand before God, what He's going to ask you is not, were you good enough? He's not going to ask you what world religion you followed. He's going to ask you if you placed your faith in His Son, if you received the gift of eternal life that He wanted to give you. Today, you can receive that gift by placing your faith in Him, by opening up your heart to Him, by confessing your need to him. That relationship can begin from this moment through all of eternity. So if that's you, very simply in your heart, I don't want you to miss this moment. He's a God who's willing. He's a God who's willing to reach out and touch people with leprosy, but he's a God who's willing to reach out and touch your brokenness today. That he looks on you, he sees all the past all the mistakes that you've made, yet he loves you in spite of that. And his invitation for you to come today stands. He's knocking on the door of your heart and he's saying all who are thirsty, all who are weak, all who are struggling, come to me so that you might find life. Come to me so that you might have happiness. But here's the thing, you gotta open up your heart to him. You gotta confess your need need to him. You gotta be willing to bend the knee and bow your heart and say to him, God, today I'm giving it to you, all of me. So very simply in your heart, pray something that might go like this to say, God, I'm sorry. I realize that the way I'm doing life is not working. I acknowledge the habits, the hurts, and the hangups that I've created in my pursuit of happiness. Jesus, I believe that you died on a cross and resurrected from the dead. And I believe that you're the payment for my wrongdoings, for my sins. I place my faith in you in this moment. I give you my life, and thank you for the life that you give to me. Thank you for new life in Jesus' name. Now with every eye closed and every head bowed in just a moment, if you prayed that prayer, I'm going to ask you to let us know on the back of your connection card. But others of you today, maybe the prayer that you need is just to acknowledge followers of Christ, to acknowledge before Him the area where you're lacking, the area where you need His help, to stop walking in pride to stop trying to do your marriage your way, to stop living in selfishness, but to let him break down that pride, to come to him with a humble and contrite heart, to confess your need to him. This could be the day that changes your marriage. This could be the day that changes the relationships that you have with your kids. This could be the moment that transitions your personal finances. This could be the day that begins joy and peace in every component of your life, but it's gonna take you coming to a place where God is willing or where you're willing to say before God, I need you. And instead of waiting until you run into the wall, why don't you just bend the knee now? Why don't you just bow before him in this moment and say, God, I'm yours. I need you. And say a prayer that might go something like this. God, I just confess my need to you today. God, in this area of my life, I confess that I need you in your heart. Let me pray a prayer for you. Jesus, thank you that you're willing Thank you that you're a God of love, that you're a God of mercy. Now I pray that in this moment that you would help every heart here today be reminded over and over and over and over again of that mercy and love that you have for us. That even though we break things apart in our lives, you're a God that can bring restoration through your forgiveness. Today we lay it before you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.